Hi, everybody. You know, it's a, it's a light crowd tonight. And that could be good, given what we're talking about. So, my son has turned me on to the band thrice. And um, I'm going to start with a song lyric called Promises. Oh, we promise pretty things, and we pledge with diamond rings, we profess undying love. But does that word hold any weight? When we reserve the right to break any vow that draws our blood, our word is so faint and feeble, broken by the slightest breeze or breath. Our hearts are, they're so deceitful, they're sick, and filled with lies that lead to death. We are cowards and thieves. We will never turn to grieve the damage done, never see, never quake with rage at what we've become. Yeah, we go down on one knee. We play at chivalry, but we do not count the cost. We say, on me you can depend, and I'll be there till the end. But we will not bear the cross. Um, Bastering scum of the earth is breaking my heart. Especially over the last 12 months or so, but uh, for the last 12 years as well. And uh, I understand what the Apostle Paul was writing about when he said... uh, in 2 Corinthians 11, besides everything else, I faced daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? It's one of the flip sides of caring for people as a pastor and loving them and enjoying them uh, when they start to tear down their lives with their own two hands You get to bear the weight. You get to walk with the burden and try to find joy in Jesus all at the same time. The older I get and the longer I'm a pastor, the more I resonate with these words from the Apostle Paul. And I don't know if it's because the congregation that I've been given, you all, is more needy or broken than most congregations, you know, across the landscape of the city, or if it's because of the culture we live in that you have a hard time staying married. I've watched couples break up that I've married. Not one time, not two times, not three times. And I've watched others fall apart five, six, seven times over the past dozen years or so. And I think I've talked enough about the four loves, about Eros, Agape, about Philia, about Storgia, or or I've talked enough wedding little sermonettes that people are finally getting the clue, but I guess I'm not doing the job that needs to be done because... It keeps happening. I've got to somehow 
swim against the tide of the culture that's coming with all of its tsunami of debris. And so must you. What I didn't expect was how it would affect me and how it would affect the rest of the church whenever a marriage breaks up for whatever reason. We pledge to love forever, but it's hard to bear the cross. It's easy to give a diamond ring. It's easy to get down on one knee. It's hard. It's hard to stay married. And, you know, I know that there's biblical reasons for divorce. There are. Jesus talked about one, which is adultery. The Apostle Paul talked about another, which is abandonment. And if you look closely, you can find out what they meant by those things. So I'm not saying that divorce is never an option. But I'm telling you, it happens way too much. And so I'm going to continue in my, my rant on young marriages. Marriages. Now, I understand that, that when the human race fell from grace, that the effects of the fall were evenly divided among both sexes. I understand that. I'm not blaming one sex over another. But I kind of noticed something that I don't think really has ever happened before in the history of humankind. Where in the past, it seemed like usually if anybody was going to screw around and mess up a marriage, it was going to be the guy. I think there's a lot of easy reasons for that. One is obviously the reproductive reason. In an age where there's no contraception, women have to bear the consequence of infidelity in a way that men never have to. A a man could sleep with a dozen women and deny that any one of those children that were produced were his kids. Where if a young wife had a baby that didn't look anything like her husband, she had some splaining to do, not just to her husband, but to the whole community. And communities were tight enough that they probably would recognize just whom the baby looked like. Lately, it seems like wives are starting to catch up. Now, if you're reading any great novels, I mean, usually they, they, they've They'll focus on the woman being the unfaithful one because that was so scandalous in the past, but it's not scandalous anymore. It seems to happen all too regularly. And I think that our obsession with romance in the Western culture has led to the breakdown of these marriages. We have taken romance and we have exalted it to a place where only God should reside. We've taken committed love, unconditional love, agape love, sacrificial love, and put it somewhere over on the shelf. So this is what I see. The problem actually starts, I think, when you're still crawling and your parents put you in front of a Disney movie a Disney princess movie where 
At the end, there is a marriage. And the couple, help me out here, live happily ever after. Very good. You all know. Okay, good. You always know in terms of literature, if it's a comedy, it's going to end in a marriage. If it's a drama, it's going to start with a marriage. (laughs) I mean, seriously, just go to the movie theater and see if I'm not right most of the time. So little boys and little girls are subjected to this kind of romantic fairy tale of a romantic life where all the energy and all the passion is moving toward the marriage, right? And then the marriage happens, and all we know is story's over. They lived happily ever after. That's great. However, it's not great. It's not great because nobody learns from the movies how to stay married. Because romance is a fickle love. It shows up and then it departs. It's kind of like tides or, or a change in the wind. You can't rely on it. It's great when it's there. You should enjoy it. But you should expect that sometime it's going to leave. And let me tell you, as people gear up for these elaborate weddings, I've never seen such elaborate weddings I mean, it used to be that a guy would ask a girl, he would just kind of maybe have a ring in his pocket and get down on one knee in some place, you know, and then pretty much the groom was out of it until the wedding day. All he had to do was show up. But now, he's been sucked into the romance of putting on a wedding. And there's, you know, bridesmaids' dresses to pick out, and there's groom's tuxes to try and figure out, and there's colors for the wedding to try and decide upon, and there are patterns of dishes and china and what kind of cups are we going to have and register for, and the guy's got to go to the registry thing, and he's got to go through the aisles looking at all this stuff that he's probably never going to use. But he's involved because it's all gearing up for this big wedding. We're really, really good at weddings. Why? Because weddings are romantic. Our expectations grow really, really high. We go through the premarital process, right? The premarital process is, is, is wonderful and effective for about the first five years of marriage, and after that it really doesn't make that much difference. Studies have shown that if you go through premarital counseling, it'll last for about five years. In other words, you'll have a lower divorce rate than people who do not go to premarital counseling. For the first five years, after five years, the rates are the same. Why? We're not sure if it's because the kind of people who go to premarital counseling are the kind of people who will stay together or if it's a result of the premarital counseling. But it's only good temporarily. And I think those figures have changed. My opinion is, it's good for the first two years of marriage. Maybe. Maybe the first one year of marriage. Because if you're going through the possible pitfalls in a marriage with a couple who is on this romance train that's picking up speed as it goes down the track 
to the destination, which is the wedding, like, and it gets faster and faster, and wedding gifts start coming in. And pretty soon you're in the middle of premarital counseling, and it looks like there's a big problem. There's a, there's a flagman up ahead waving a red flag, saying the bridge is out, but the train is going so fast, that you, this train is not stopping, and no one's jumping off. And so they just go ahead and get married. And then they hit that bridge, and it crashes. Which is why now I'm kind of promoting pre-engagement counseling. <laughs> because we don't have the pressure of the wedding in pre-engagement counseling. And the engagement is kind of at somebody's discretion. Usually the, the boys, not always. You know, the Bible talks about this kind of passion that moves us down the track of life to get married. And it's found in a book called The Song of Songs. And this passage is read at weddings quite often. Can you read that? Song of Songs, chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. The woman is speaking here. And she says, my lover spoke to me and said to me, arise, my darling, my beautiful one. Come with me. See, the winter is past. The rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth. The season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one. Come with me. Sweet talk in the Bible, right there. A young man in love says words that are enticing and enchanting, to any woman who would like to hear them from that particular man. They're the kinds of things every girl wants to hear from a guy who has captured her fancy. Now, the Old Testament book is called Song of Songs, which means basically saying it's the best song of all. And sometimes people are surprised to discover this book in the Bible because it is really a collection of sensual love poetry. It's a celebration of a love, passionate love, between a man and a woman, and it can be interpreted on several levels, all of them true, some allegorical. And so this woman is telling us how this young man has called her to himself. He says it's a new season. It's a new season. God is doing a new thing in our relationship. It's springtime. It has the potential of everything that spring has. Things are fresh where once they were dry. Maybe you were lonely before. And now, look, it's a new season. Someone is paying you a heap of attention. He calls forth all that is beautiful in her. She likes that. Let me tell you something, guys. She likes that. 
before she's married. She likes that when she's engaged. And she likes that when she's married. She will always like that. Let me stress this point. She will never stop liking that. Because guys, young husbands, I think, to say it kindly, are clueless. They somehow feel that once they have won the hand of fair maiden, then they're done. You are not done. You've won her hand. Now go for her wrist, her elbow, her arms, and the rest of her for the rest of your life. Song of Songs, chapter 8, verses 1 through 7, the, the, the woman is again speaking, and then we have a chorus of friends that kind of give a reply, and then the girl goes on in her poetry. I won't go into all the details right now because it's kind of complex, but... This is what she says. In, in a culture where, where public displays of affection between spouses really are not done. Okay? I mean, honestly, biblical culture is far more akin to Muslim culture than it is to any other culture that I know of right now. There's that kind of separation between the sexes. You know, you're not going to see public displays of affection between a husband and wife, like you would between, let's say, a brother and a sister, even, or a, or a father and a child, or a mother and a child, or even between siblings. So this is what she says. If I found you outside, I would kiss you. I would lead you and bring you to my mother's house. She who has taught me, I would give you spiced wine to drink, the nectar of my pomegranates. At which point the reader has to pause. And wonder, is she speaking metaphorically? <laughs> is she speaking literally? Because both would be awesome. <laughs> this is the tame part of Song of Songs. I've done the not-so-tame part several years ago and uh, thoroughly scandalized one of my primary supporters who happened to be there that night. Maybe another day. His left arm is under my head. His right arm embraces me. His left arm is under my head. His right arm embraces me. That's, that's a pose you see in the movies, Right? And then she says, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. You know, love is a powerful thing, we're going to find out. And, and what she is saying is, is so powerful, you really shouldn't play with it before you're ready. You really shouldn't play with it before you're ready. I mean, if you're single and listening to this talk, my rant on young marriages, um, you may think this doesn't apply to you. It does. 
because a lot of you will get married. And um, all of you are the friends of people who are married, or you are the child of people who are probably married. So it does apply to you. And all I got to say if you're single is this stuff is fire. And don't play with it until it's the right time. Then the friends say in chorus, Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? So she's out in public. She's probably doing what ought not to be done. She's totally in love with her new husband. She is leaning on him. She's grabbed him. She wants to just kind of make out with him right there on the street. But she's not going to. She would like to take him to her mother's house, um, where her mother taught her, I'm assuming, womanly things. And there she would like to seduce her husband. So she's coming up, and the friends say, who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? And then she says this, under the apple tree I roused you. There your mother conceived you. There she who was in labor gave you birth. So basically what she's saying is, is that she wanted, she got this man excited about her in a place that carries a lot of sexual history for him. And now for her because he is her Beloved, under the apple tree I roused you, there your mother conceived you, there she who was in labor gave you birth. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave, it burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Let me say that again. This is beautiful poetry. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. What does this passage tell us? It tells us that love brings two people into a union so close, it's kind of like a tattoo on your soul. She requests to be placed as a seal on a cord around his neck or around his arm, which actually, uh, back in those days, very often a woman would have a stone with a hole drilled in it, a little tiny stone, a polished stone, with a hole drilled in it, and it would say, like, I am the wife of blah, 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 blah. Like, she wants, she wants to be his. Always. Near his heart. They've actually found artifacts like this in archaeological digs, so I'm not making it up. 
She says that love is as strong as death. Its power is unbreakable and as irresistible as death itself. Can anybody here resist death? I don't think so. I mean, it's coming. And when it comes, you can't resist it. Love is like that. When it hits you, you're a goner. You can't help it. You fall. You are in love. We love this part of the whole marriage process, right? We love the romance part. Because Eros romance speaks in a big voice. As a matter of fact, if there's one way that Eros is like agape, it's that it speaks with the voice of a god, and we can't resist. Like all of a sudden, for a brief shining time, we are more concerned about somebody else than we are about ourselves. We have never done that before. We know we're selfish jerks, right? But all of a sudden, somebody else's well-being is at the forefront of our minds. We're going, that is amazing. I am in love. In that way, Eros mirrors agape in a very, very wonderful way. And when it hits you, it hits you. Men and women would die for this kind of love, for it's that strong and fierce. And if you go through the history of the world, you will find that that is true. I mean, you can go back to the fables of the Trojan War. Helen of Troy, the face that launched a thousand ships. And and that's just one legend. There's more. You've heard them. You've seen them made into movies. This kind of love and devotion is so ardent that it demands undivided attention in return. The Bible uses the word jealous here and in in a positive way. It's pointing to a love that is jealous for someone, not a love that is jealous of someone. Someone. There's a big difference. It's a love that is jealous for somebody, not a love that is jealous of somebody. It's a love that wants the best for someone. It want, it's a love that, that requires everything from the object of desire. It's proper for two people to be passionately in love with each other in this way, expecting that kind of love from one another. Now, There's an interesting little part to this in Hebrew that you really can't get to in English. There's the part here where it says, love burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame, right? We understand those words, and we understand that love burns like a fire, you know. You know, Johnny Cash and June Carter sang that song, right, about it being a ring of fire. We understand that. But in, in Hebrew, the way they make that word, mighty fire, vehement flame, blazing fire, is by combining the word for fire with the word for God in a way that only Hebrew can do. So in essence, it becomes the God flame. This is the flame that burns like no other. This is the flame that cannot be quenched. This is the flame... 
that rages. And so, in the Hebrew mind, the kind of love between a man and woman doesn't necessarily come from them, but it comes from God. And in order to remain burning and passionate, it must stay connected to God, or it will go out. This is totally different from the Greek mindset of romance or eros. Eros is the Greek word for Cupid. You know who Cupid is. It's that little impish demigod with, you know, the baby fat and the little tiny wings and a little tiny bow and arrow who goes around shooting at people his arrows of love. And he's really good at making sure people fall in love who aren't supposed to fall in love. So beautiful maidens fall in love with ugly boys. And gods and goddesses fall in love with mere mortals. And those who are married don't fall in love with each other, but rather they fall in love with other people, sometimes other married people. This Hebrew ideal of the God flame is the one that I want to talk about tonight. Contrasting that with the Greek concept of eros or romance. It is the God flame that will keep young couples burning for each other. It's that love that's found in God's passion for us. So when young couples get married, what follows happens to even the best of them. Somewhere during the first year of marriage, romance dissipates. Eros takes a hike. There was like this building up of passion before the wedding, and it's kind of like the high is the wedding, and then the low becomes the marriage. Manic depressive kind of a thing. The couple doesn't want it to, but it does. Because Eros is simply not sustainable over a long period of time. It has to come and go. It's not God. A different kind of love has to take its place. One that's not quite as flashy. The friendship has to find a way of working. And at some point, unconditional love has to come into the picture. I mean, we, we, we say these unconditional love kinds of things at weddings, right? I will love you forever, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death to his part. And I feel like God is up in heaven going, really, honestly, that's how you feel? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health, until death do you part. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll give you a chance to walk out that vow. You can count on it. Which means it's going to get worse. Which means you might get poorer. Which means somebody might get sick. And you're going, or you're going to want to leave a long time before one of you dies. 
Because if you don't go through that, you aren't loving the way that 1 Corinthians 13 love talks about. Love is patient, love is kind, doesn't keep a record of wrongs, etc., etc., etc. Because here is the truth. Romantic love makes a wonderful companion, but it makes a terrible master. Romantic love makes a wonderful companion, but it makes a terrible master. If you try to serve romantic love your whole married life, you will always be disappointed. Because it never shows up when you want it to, and it shows up when you least expect it. That is the plot of so many freaking rom-com movies. You've seen it, right? Two young people see each other across a crowded room. And he tries to get to her, and she tries to get to him. But, you know, there's this conga line in the middle or something. The dancing is going on. They're doing the funky chicken, and they can't get together. And they miss each other totally. Or they are married, and she decides she's going to make a lovely rooftop dinner for him. And so she makes this great dinner. He has no idea. And there's you know, cloth tablecloths, and there's actual cloth napkins, and there's candles, and there's music playing, and she's got this amazing French dish she's made out of the Julia Child cookbook, and she is waiting. But he's delayed. The boss said he had to stay after. The traffic got bad. There was a disaster somewhere else in the city, and he can't make it. And so all you know is is she's waiting and waiting and her expectations are getting dashed and dashed and, and then pretty soon she starts eating and drinking the wine by herself and she goes to bed. And romance is dead. But she was ready for it. You see, you can't count on it. We know people who can go from arguing to kissing all within half an hour. Right? Romance is capricious. It's not to be counted upon. We say things like there's a thin line between love and hate. What we mean is there's a thin line between romance and hate. Because when your expectations are not met, you're ticked. This romance worship, this eros worship, is a disease that is rotting out young marriages at scum and all over the country. And it rots them out within the first two years of marriage. I'm not kidding. When a marriage crosses the two-year threshold, we should have a party. Used to be the seven-year itch, right? You had seven years, you're going to hit some bumpy weather. No, it's like one to two years you're going to hit it now. Because romance has taken a hike. Normally when the marriage ends that quickly, I would say a departure of romance can be blamed. Here's a scenario that I see way too often now. A young woman recently married has had her expectations of marriage begin to die within the first year of her marriage. She's lonely. 
She expects her husband to notice this. She expects him to read her mind. Unfortunately, most men are not equipped with that X-man power. So she pouts. He still may not notice. So she withdraws. All before she suggests counseling. Now, finally, she's so despondent that she suggests counseling. But the young husband, having been clueless, decides to argue with her because, you know, that's how guys think. I'm going to logically explain to you why you shouldn't have these feelings. And that always works. And what I've seen is he brings such a logical argument that sometimes she just feels stupid. Or she feels like he doesn't really care enough to engage me in this conversation. And so she goes further into depression, and she's ashamed to talk about it to anybody because you've only been married a year. How can you have these feelings? You still are unpacking wedding gifts. You should still be on the honeymoon high. And so she stuffs it down farther and farther where she hopes it will go away. Now, it used to be when the honeymoon was over, couples knew that they had to get down to the serious business of loving one another in spite of unfulfilled desires or expectations. And it was at that point the agape love, the 1 Corinthians 13 love they talked about during the wedding would take over. In spite of that current spouse being unlovable. Because that's what it means. Agape love means loving somebody who is not lovable. Let Let me explain this one more time. When you get married... You are promising to love somebody when they are not lovable. In other words, you're not going to like them. In other words, they're going to disappoint you. In other words, they're going to tick you off. In other words, you're going to be thinking, I married the wrong person. Okay, that will happen. The day will come at some point after you're married where you will say to yourself, I totally made the biggest mistake in my life when I married that person. Rejoice at that particular point because that means you are now learning what it means to love unconditionally. But Eros is not content letting the couple work it out on their own. No. That little imp will come around and make sure that there's somebody at work who will be glad to listen to your woes and your problems about your young husband or about your young wife. That person will come alongside as a friend, of course, as a friend. Of course, as a friend. And you will begin to share your heart with that person, even though your husband isn't letting you share your heart with him. And as you share your heart bit by bit, your feelings begin to go 
to that person bit by bit. Friendship leads to the sharing of hearts. Sharing the hearts leads to feelings of intimacy. Feelings of of intimacy lead to physical intimacy, maybe just hand-holding, maybe hugs that are R-rated. And after a while, the young bride is convinced that she has found her soulmate in another young man who is not her husband. Let me explain. I have not seen this once. I have not seen this only twice. I have not seen this only three times. I have not seen this only four times. I have not seen this only five times. I have seen this many times. This is how it happens. It could happen to either the young husband or the young wife. In Mary's and my case, it was the young husband. It was me. Many of you know that Mary and I did not have an easy marriage. And I think the way that I chose to deal with the emotional ups and downs, the roller coaster of our love for one another, was by emotionally withdrawing because I just couldn't handle the highs and the lows. And, and I remember thinking I had chosen to be the quote-unquote dutiful Christian husband for the rest of my life. Just will. I'll do it. What I didn't know was is that I was telegraphing what was going on without speaking. I was one giant ball of perceived need. I longed for affirmation from the feminine. I longed for attention from the feminine. And I longed for affection. Without even realizing it, I began talking to a girl at work, a Christian girl. I wasn't setting out to have an emotional affair, but I did. And pretty soon in my mind, I'm wondering things like, I wonder what might have happened if I had met this woman before I met Mary. That's usually the first question you ask yourself when you're headed in the direction of an emotional affair. You begin to fantasize. I mean, obviously, that's a stupid scenario. That didn't happen. It's not going to ever happen. Why you think about it is just deception. Which then led into, I wonder if, you know, her spouse died and Mary died. I wonder if we could get together. I wonder what that would be like. Could we do that? Now, at that point... By the grace of God, I stopped and thought, what am I thinking? I thought, I need help. I've got to talk to somebody. And uh, the last thing I wanted to do was talk to my pastor about it. 
I was not in the ministry at this point. I was working a job at North Star Steel Company. And so I just knew the Holy Spirit was telling me, you got to tell somebody, you got to get out there, you gotta, you got to be transparent about this, you got to walk in the light about this. And so I called the senior pastor, this lion of a man that I was in some ways afraid of, and said, can I meet with you? He said, sure. And uh, I told him what was going on in my head. And I expected him to come down on me like, you know, a wall of bricks. But he got really vulnerable and almost gentle with me. He said, Mike, Mike, this is serious. He says, you're in an emotional affair. He said, physical affairs are always preceded by emotional affairs. You have to nip this in the bud. In other words, there's an unholy flower growing in your mind. And before that flower opens up, you have to just twist off that that bud before it causes destruction. And then he proceeded to tell me about how he had a 12-year-long affair with his secretary before he came to Christ. And how after he came to Christ, he knew that he had to come clean with his wife. And then he talked to me about just the difficulty of walking through that with his wife. How hard it was. Scared the crap out of me. He goes, Mike, you don't want to deal with that kind of pain. And, and you have children too. And they've got to go through it as well. He goes, you don't want to deal with that kind of guilt. You have to nip this thing in the bud. So what did nipping it in the bud look like for me? It looked like totally cutting off all contact with this woman. 100%. I didn't talk to her. I didn't write her. I didn't talk to her to tell her I wasn't going to talk to her anymore. Just stopped. I asked my pastor, do I have to tell my wife? And he very wisely, knowing Mary and I, said, no, I don't think you need to do that right now. There'll be a time for that later on down the road. But you guys are not in the best of shape at the moment. Why don't you wait on that one? And I did. Tell Mary later. Now, I have seen couples in this process where, and in, well, in most every case, except for one or two, it's the wife who is now involved in the emotional and then the physical affair. I've seen the husband finally get a clue. And he finally wakes up to the fact that he's screwed up and that he wants to make it better and he's trying to make it better, but he doesn't know how. So he comes and he talks to me. The problem is his wife's checked out. She's done. It's over. She's given her heart 
and sometimes her body to another man. And I've had one guy tell me, he said, Mike, it's like my marriage is this giant messy room and I finally want to go in there and I want to straighten it out. I want to clean it up. But the door's closed and there's a lock on the door and the lock has that guy's name on it. And I can't get in. And he can't. It's too late. I'm going to wrap up here. How do you prevent yourself from going down that road? Maybe you're not married now, but maybe someday you won't be. Or maybe you're married now and you're heading down that road. Or maybe you're dismarried and you haven't even thought about that road, but you know what's coming. Especially in this culture. What you need to know is, number one, it's only God who can meet your needs. Your needs for romance, your needs for intimacy, your needs for conversation, your needs for protection, your needs for security. It's only God that can do that. Only God. You can't find it in your spouse. Because you look for it in your spouse, guess what? You're going to be disappointed. Expect your spouse to fail. And when your spouse isn't meeting your needs, and that, that torch that you've carried for so long of burning love for that person begins to flicker out, you've got to go light that torch at the altar of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's the only place that that passion for that other person will stay lit, is if you keep going back to Jesus. Because Jesus understands what it's like to be forsaken by his bride. To be spit at by his bride. To be crucified and killed and buried by his bride. Jesus understands all that. When I think about the kind of husband that Jesus is to his church, us, his bride, it blows my mind. How could he still love us? We don't even listen to him, much less talk to him. The primary relationship is always your one with God. That's the way to keep your marriage alive. To keep the God flame lit. That's it. That's the number one application. I don't know what else to stay. Stay in fellowship with God. Number two, stay transparent with His church. Do what I did. Go talk to a mentor, go talk to a pastor, go talk to a counselor. Mary and I have been to counselors, we have been to pastors, we have been to menders. We've done all three in 34 years of marriage. And all three have helped us. That's the body of Christ coming to help heal itself. We were an infected part of the body and little white blood cells started coming from all these other Christians to help us and to kill the infection. Seriously, I don't know how else to say it. Like sometimes you're thinking totally wrong about your spouse. And it takes somebody else, the third party, to say, okay, wait a minute, stop here. Okay, 
Now, Mary chose you from all the other guys that she could have had, right? Right. And she stayed with you through the birth of four children and through your lackluster vocational career, right? Right. And she still enjoys being with you a lot of the time, right? Right. And she still does. I mean, so you see what I'm saying? They bring you back to reality. You're thinking, this person doesn't care about me, blah, 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 blah. But it's the body of Christ that begins to heal you. God using the body of Christ. Thrice has another song called The Weight. And it goes like this. There's many who will tell you they'll give you their love. When they say give, they just mean take. Hang around like vultures till push comes to shove and take flight when the earth starts to shake. Someone may say that they'll always be true, then slip out the door before dawn. But I won't leave you hanging on. Another may stay till they find someone new. Then before you know, they'll be gone. But I won't leave you hanging on. No, I won't. I won't be that someone. And come what may, I won't abandon you or leave you behind because love is a loyalty sworn, not a burning for a moment. Come what may, I will be standing right here by your side. I won't run away, though the storm's getting worse and there's no end in sight. Some talk of destiny, others of fate. Soon they'll be saying goodbye, but I won't leave you high and dry because a ring don't mean nothing if you can't haul the weight. And some of them won't even try. But I won't leave you high and dry. No, I won't. I won't leave you wondering why. And come what may, I won't abandon you or leave you behind because love is a loyalty sworn, not a burning for a moment. Come what may, I'll be standing right here by your side. I won't run away, though the storm is getting worse and there's no end in sight. Storms will surely come, but true love is a choice you make, and you are the one. You are the one that I have set my heart to choose as long as I live. I swear I'll see this through, because come what may, I won't abandon you or leave you behind because love is a loyalty sworn, not a burning for a moment. Come what may, I'll be standing right here by your side. I won't run away, though the storm is getting worse, and there's no end in sight. Amen.